those of you who've been here all along, I started out with uh, how to mine your life and those near and dear to you nefariously to get fiction into it uh, and how to twist it and adapt it so that no one actually knows and the risks involved in that. What James, uh, I hope, is going to talk about is how to do it in a slightly more ethical way, uh, which is, let's say, the human fiction and life writing really isn't it, but life writing supposedly is all about thought. Um, anyway, James, uh, author and journalist, um, has written books such as Serpent of Eden, uh, about a famous unsolved murder committed in the Bahamas. Uh, that was uh, nominated for the Gold, the Gold Dagger and uh, adapted to television. We have also had Nuremberg, Evil on Trial, Danger UXB, which is a fantastic title, The History of the Early Days of Bomb Disposal, and Commando, and also edited an anthology about Second World War. So uh, I'm very much looking forward to this because I have got a story in my family that I would like to write about. I've never thought about it. Um, so that's what we're going to hear. Thank you very much, James. Thank you. Um, I have all the danger of, sort of coming on. Can you all hear me, by the way? I got asked whether the mic's working, but I see it's working. Um, I think it's all the danger of sort of coming on third. I mean, I'm sure some of you already sat through Johnson and, and Shelley and learnt a lot from them. And there's always danger that I'm going to tell you either exactly what you've already heard, because I don't know what, what they were going to say, or I'm going to tell you something completely different, which is sort of no more helpful, really. But uh, um, I was in two minds about how to do this talk, because I think that I think writing non, non-fiction is really quite hard, um, and it's very different from fiction for lots of reasons. And one of them is that if, you, if you're here because you want to write non-fiction, you all probably have different sorts of non-fiction that you want to explore. I mean, some people might want to be write a conventional biography, some people might want to research their family history, and it's quite difficult to give a sort of generalised prescription about how to go about doing that, um, because the danger is that it won't apply to some people, and um, you know, I'd like all of you to go away feeling you've got something out of this talk. So I'm going to talk a bit about my own experiences and how I've approached the particular things that I've done in the hope that that will jumpstart some ideas. And then, uh, depending on how much time we get and how interested you still look, um, I thought we'd have a sort of Q&A surgery type um, session towards the end so that if people have got particular questions they want to ask me, I will try to help with those and then... Hopefully, the answers will be of interest to the rest of you. Uh, so, in terms of kind of, well, just, just tell you what, what I do. And Jonathan told you briefly that I'm, I'm an author and a journalist. Uh, I also teach here um, part time. I'm what's called a Royal Literary Fund Fellow. And uh, I and Shelley, who was uh, on just before me, um, we're here to really help anybody at the LSE with their writing needs. And that's, I think, anyway, trying to help people with their find their voice as a writer, um, you know, whether they're a student um, and they want to learn how to express themselves with impact or you know, part of the stuff. So um, you know, teaching is something that's, that's new to me, but my sort of day job uh, for a long time has been writing obituaries for newspapers, uh, which is a form of non-fiction, usually. Um, I mean, you're sort of reliant very much on, as any writer of non-fiction is, on your sources. Um, and you like a good training in some of the key things that you need to think about as a non-fiction writer, which is how do you get material together, how do you compress that material, how do you select from it those bits of it which will tell the story, 
which will retain the reader's interest, or hopefully get the reader's interest and, and retain it, and do it all in you know, uh, really quite a, a short number of words. Um, and uh, also, you know, how, do you, how much can you rely on your sources? I mean, obituaries are sort of unusual because, by and large, you're usually just talking to people who liked the subject. Um, and it's not very often that uh, I talk to people who tell me things that um, their family don't know about them or that um, cast a rather different light on their character. But, you know, one of the things that you have to learn to do as a writer of nonfiction is... Keeping, you know, keeping the back of your mind this idea of, well, how much can I trust this source? And one of the things I want to talk about today is how reliable your sources are and you know, where you get them from and even things that look quite reliable, like newspaper reports uh, or even obituaries, uh, can turn out actually you know, to you know, not be uh, as um, reliable as you thought. Um, I thought I'd start with, I've got a sort of rather slightly ropey collection of, of slides which I've put together. Um, just in terms of why do, why do I write non-fiction? What is it that, that piques my curiosity you know, and perhaps piques yours? Um, the answer is that actually, as with fiction, I'm really in the business of telling a story. Um, and this is a sort of funny little example of something. I was just uh, online yesterday uh, trying to find a photograph of the house in which I'd grown up. And one of the great things about the digital revolution, about technology of the last 10 years, all sorts of people have started to put stuff online that's now readily available, which you know, wouldn't have been there 10 years ago. People's family photo albums, all sorts of things which might you know, just, just spark an idea. <clears throat> so I was uh, looking for this photograph of the house, and uh, I then came across uh, not a photo of it, but uh, a brief mention of it in of the, the name of the house in a uh, newspaper report from the 1890s, and it was like something out of Sherlock Holmes. It said that uh, a Reverend Henry Sandwith um, had been found dead in the lavatory of the house which I'd grown up. I hadn't known I lived there for 20 years and had no idea about this. Um, with a shotgun between his knees and a walking stick nearby, um, and that was just. You know, I suddenly thought, well, there's all sorts of things that you could do with that. You know, how much could, can you find out easily about this person? I mean, it sounds like such a great start for a story. Um, and I think if you're the sort of person who reads that, a paragraph from the newspaper and thinks, and there's more behind that than, than meets the eye. There's something here, there's a story you to be told. You know, how did this respectable Victorian clergyman um, uh, somehow end up you know, apparently, if he did, taking his own life in you know, the lavatory, not even his own house, of a house in which he was staying, uh, belonged to a friend. Uh, and um, I did a bit of uh, very quick Googling, and um, all sorts of things came to life which suggested there was more to this than met the eye. You, could, you, know, you can now, with the, the magic of the internet, find out quite quickly. Uh, from I wondered, for instance, had he been married? Yes, he had. So there was a census, and that told you something about uh, it told you the name of his wife, so that was you know, another avenue you could explore. It told you how many people lived in uh, the household to give you some idea of, you know, in terms of trying to paint the picture, which is what I suppose you're trying to do as an author. You're trying to create in the reader's mind what you yourself have seen, or you know, what's what's down on your page. And so, you know, already there was, you know, I was mentally conjuring up this image of a rather sort of bronze vicarage in 
uh, in Yorkshire um, and um, you know, various avenues that could be explored. It turned out that his brother had been a, a famous collector of Greek pottery and there were, you know, there were some letters and archives in Leeds City Museum. So really from a little paragraph in a newspaper that I'd come across by chance within about sort of 10 or 15 minutes, I you know, started to put together you know, really quite a lot of detail uh, on uh, somebody. So I think it's, you know, in a way, non-fiction is limited by, you know, your, your own curiosity. It's limited by, you know, your own imagination. How much are you stimulated by these things? You know, how can you go about creatively trying to reproduce, usually the past, um, you know, try to make it tangible? I mean, I think it's, it's quite important if you're engaged in writing about the past to have a sense that it isn't something that's distant and remote. It's something that can be brought back to life. I mean, one of the great things for non-fiction writers now is that people live so much longer so that you can write about something which took place really quite a long time ago, and yet there are still people about who live through that, who can tell you about that. Um, that's a sort of major advantage. Um, so so I spent all my life, well, most of my adolescence anyway, in this village, and I remembered this tomb, and this was actually the tomb of the unfortunate clergyman who had committed suicide in the loo of this house in which I'd grown up and which I'd known nothing about uh, all these years, and I'd walked past that, I suppose, dozens of times, um, and never appreciated that here was a story which was waiting to be uncovered. So it was just a little lesson about you know, what one can make of, of you know, seemingly not very much with a bit of imagination and um, uh, you know, the will to want to tell a story and to uncover you know, from seemingly unpromising details you know, something that I, I, I find fascinating. I mean, what, what is it that had led this person to behave in this, ex, this extreme way? Um, I mean, there, so I was just having a look through when I, when I was, uh, got this photograph of the tomb. There were various other things that... Uh, this is, uh, came to mind. So, you know, very quickly I managed to find a photograph of the village hall that this um, chap had built, but that's where his money had gone. He hadn't left it to his wife. He left it to the parish, and they'd erected a village hall in his memory, and that told you something about his relations with his wife. It told you something about his relationship with his parishioners and what he thought was uh, important. Um, this is my day job. I write obituaries. This is actually my uh, old history teacher. Um, for the Times. Um, and one of the exercises that I like to do when I'm um, giving talks like this, and I might get you to just think about it while I'm talking uh, about other things, is what would you do if you had to write your own obituary? I mean, it's quite a good way, actually, of imagining how would I tell a story that I know a lot about? Um, what do I put in and what do I not put in? What would I start with? You know, what is it about my life that would interest somebody else? You know, by extension, if you're writing about someone else's life, what is it about their life which would, ex you know, an interest a reader? It may not be the obvious things. You know, we all know, or we all think we know, what a bank manager does. Do people want to read the picture of a bank manager? Probably not. If he's won a medal on D-Day, Okay, that was ten minutes of his life, probably, in which he did something extraordinary. But that's actually what's going to hook the reader, and maybe also it'll allow you access to another part of his life. So, it's you know a key 
thing that you're doing as a writer is thinking about how do you shape your material. It's not necessarily the case that you're going to go through it just in chronological order, because that might be the most obvious way. I mean, you know, with obituaries, you would think that you're going to write a piece about somebody that goes from cradle to grave. Actually, most obituaries, anyway, in uh, uh, broadsheets don't start with the person's birth because uh, that's not necessarily telling anything that you you, know, you don't know. I mean, they, that tends to turn up turn up somewhere round about there. So most of the start of it is a summary of something that's hopefully a bit more unusual, more interesting. You know, and tells you what claim does this person have on your time. So, you know, one of the things that I had to think about. Uh, doing when um, I was writing a book about bomb disposal was how do I catch the reader's attention from the start? Where, you know, what, what should I open the book with um, to, to really hook people who you know, may not know anything about this extraordinary world in which people had taken huge risks during the war, um, really <coughs> not knowing a great deal about what they were dealing with, constantly aware that the Germans might have made some advance to um, fuse technology, which uh, they wouldn't know about. Um, so I thought the other thing to start with was something going wrong, uh, with a bomb going off and people being killed. Um, so the, I, mean, I, I think it's quite important not to be passive as a writer. I think you should be making active choices about the way in which you shape things. And I say this to my students sometimes, you know, if you're writing an essay, you can't really go wrong with doing something that's a bit left to feel and a bit bold because it just distinguishes you from everybody else and certainly as a writer that's one of the things that you want to do you don't want to be just like everybody else um, because that's, that's you know, it's not necessarily uh, a way to catch the public's attention um, so what is it that stimulates your imagination what can you, you, know, what, what can you start from, what might tell a story, I was just looking through some sort of photographs in my own sort of uh, family album. I mean, here's a sort of extraordinary photograph of three Victorian gentlemen in Germany. Um, you know, something like that. I just find, I think, well, what's the story behind that? You know, who are these, who are these people? What are they doing there? Uh, here's a scene of uh, various people standing around an aircraft. Why are they standing around? Who's this tall chap on the left and what are they doing? Well, the short, fat man next to the tall man on the left is actually my grandfather. This is the the Congo in the 1960s, um, and he was the Belgian uh, governor of the Congo at the time. There's a story behind that photograph. I don't know what it is. He's dead. I was never able to talk to him about it. It's a lost opportunity, but I might be able to recreate it. I might be able to find out what was going on. You can't see this, I expect, very well, but it, again, this is an old house, and you can just see by the gate, there's a rather sort of ghostly figure of somebody standing there. Again, I mean... There are lots of sources that you can work from. It doesn't have to be documents. It doesn't have to be interviews with people, words set down. You can do a lot in terms of conjuring up atmosphere, in terms of stimulating your own imagination from less obvious sources, from something like a photograph. Um, you know, if you want to paint a picture in somebody's mind of what it was like to be, in this case, in Florence in around about 1900... You know, that's a really invaluable tool. I mean, don't neglect the wide range of things that you can work from. Um, if you want to... Whoops. Uh, i plug one of my own books. If you're writing a book, for instance, about uh, the Bahamas in the 1940s, 
it's the sort of book which people are going to read because they want to find out about the atmosphere as much as anything else. I mean, that book, yes, it's a murder mystery, and that's the sort of hook, that what's, that's what brings people into the book. But actually what I was interested in, in that case, was conjuring up this rather sort of hothouse world of the Bahamas during the Second World War, which is about as safe and remote a place as you could be. It was about as unthreatening and undangerous in the middle of a global conflict as it could be. It was full of rich, rather dishonest people who had, by and large, fled the war um, you know, with their money. And I wanted to give some sense of that overripe, um, heady uh, atmosphere where there were very few rules, where people... Um, you know, were not being often, they weren't with their husband or wife who'd been left behind in Britain, uh, where they were sort of misbehaving, what um, Sunset Morn called a, a shady place, a sunny place for shady people. Um, and what was really helpful uh, to me in terms of conjuring that up, because Nassau, the Bahamas now changed beyond recognition, it's like Abu Dhabi, you know, it was a small, pretty colonial town when my grandmother, who was the person who gave me this story because she'd been there at the time, I've been there, and now if you go back, it's really got very little sort of charm left. And so, you know, I did go back and do research, but it was impossible to give a sense of what it had been like, um, except through using things like old photographs. Again, so, you know, that paints a picture. You can describe that very easily. It's not an obvious document that you can work from. Um, but I've probably got three or four pages of atmosphere out of. You know how you know the ab- almost the absence of cars. That's the 1940s. There's you know one or two cars in the picture. Most people are walking or still taking. I think they're called jitneys. These little sort of carriages. You know something like that. You've got the trees. You've got the nice sort of colonial architecture with the porches and all the rest of it. You know if you can translate that into words. You know really then you're halfway there in terms of sort of conjuring up what it is that um, you know the painting, uh, the picture that you're trying to implant in the reader's mind. So something like that's invaluable. Um, so some of this is going to sound sort of quite obvious, but I mean, how do you, you know, how do I, anyway, go about actually coming up with material to um, put together a book? Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a professional writer, so I write books which are round about 120, 150, sometimes 200,000 words whatever it is that you're working on, if you want to work on something, might be at a different length. And so you have to think about you know, what, you, what it is that you want to put in. You might not want to put in everything, but uh, if I'm writing a book like that, I probably need to collect round about a million words of source material, um, to, which can be boiled down into something. So that means I have to cast my net pretty far and wide. Um, where do I start? Well, you know, as with that... The, the poor dead clergyman. Um, you know, when I first have an idea for something, everybody's first port of call now is 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 the internet. You know, and I think you know, the way to use that is to use it creatively. I mean, you know, what you can find is only really limited by the creative way in which you phrase your searches. Um, but there are various bits, for instance, of Google that not all of you will know about. Um, there's Google Books, which is becoming increasingly important for writers as a, a virtual library. I mean, there are excerpts from an extraordinary number of uh, books which will lead you in turn 
you know, um, if you do a search on that, to all sorts of useful secondary sources, whatever you're looking for. Don't neglect, there's a peculiar thing called, which is mainly known by, by, by academics called, well, JSTOR and Google Scholar. Again, those are works by academics um, or excerpts and works by academics. But again, they're something that is a resource which is not to be neglected if you're, you know, trying to find things to, to, to guide you, um, you know, when you're making your star. Um, then, I mean, then I tend to move on to secondary sources. And one thing that I've learned from writing books, when I'm normally writing a proposal for a book, it's almost, it's very rarely a, a totally new story. Um, it's often a story which has been told by somebody else, but I think not particularly well done. There's room to tell it properly. So when I was writing this murder mystery story, um, there'd been four or five versions of it before, but I didn't think that any of them done, had been done particularly well. They hadn't really explored what I wanted to explore, which was this atmosphere, and I also think they happened to have got the identity of the murderer wrong, which is fairly key in a sort of murder mystery. So, um, But I, I believed, uh, when I was sort of setting out on uh, the trail of this, that most of the incidental detail which was recounted in the books only was right, and it looked like they sourced that from newspapers of the time uh, and so on. Um, and it wasn't until I'd you know, gone through all that material myself that I discovered almost all of it was wrong. I mean, you know, you, it was almost nothing that I could rely on. People had, you know, they copied down the names of people wrong. They got the times wrong. I mean, fairly, you know, fairly key if you're trying to determine who'd done it is to have some, you know, an accurate timeline, and that's what's the heart of most non-fiction books, at least when you're organising it, is, you know, to have some sense of what happened when, and that's your skeleton on which you're, you're hanging things. So, for instance, in this, um, in this book, there was a... Um, the interest of it for the wider media was that the governor of the Bahamas at the time was the Duke of Windsor, former Edward VIII, and... Uh, the, um, he'd taken the unusual step uh, of when this um, very rich man who was, um, uh, had been murdered, which is sort of half the book, of not allowing the local police to investigate uh, the murder, but of getting policemen in from Miami, just across the water in Florida, to come in and do it. And the suggestion had always been that he did that because he wanted to have uh, the sort of villain of the piece, this uh, gold-digging son-in-law of the rich chap, framed because they totally didn't get on. Um, and uh, that, that version had all been repeated in, in all of the previous books and had become sort of standard truth. Um, but actually, when I looked at physically where the people had been at the time at which the policeman was supposed to have done the framing, it became very clear that the man couldn't have been framed. The key piece of evidence was... Um, it sounds like something out of um, Murder, She Wrote, but it was, a, um, it was a fingerprint on a Chinese screen which uh, the son-in-law was supposed to have left in the room when he'd bumped off his father-in-law. Um, but actually it turned out, just by a very simple process of looking at who had been where they had been when they said they'd been there, that the policeman must have uh, taken a copy of this print, which was then produced in court, before they'd ever met Windsor. They met basically, they met Windsor for the first time in the afternoon. They went and did the investigation at the murder scene in the morning. So if they were 
framing him, which was still a possibility, uh, it must have already decided to, to get this evidence and to set up the frame before they met Wyndham. So just by a very simple um, process of checking facts, I discovered that one of the sort of key, my key assumptions about the whole story had been overturned. Uh, and that's a sort of useful lesson. That's been proved again and again uh, um, you know, when I've been doing books. You know, you've got to do the groundwork. For your, you've got to do the work for yourself. Um, you know, don't rely on, on secondary sources are a good way of getting you into the story, of giving incidental detail. Um, but that, you know, things in them need to be checked. It's also, I think, um, two other things. Uh, if, you can, if you're writing about a place, it's vital to go and see it because nothing else really... Um, stands in for you having been there and um, when you're sort of in two minds about whether to do something is it really worth me going there is it really worth bringing out that person, is it really worth me doing that interview, it always is it always turns out to be the key thing um, uh, in the book and you know they become a series of adding 1% extra to what you're writing and if you do enough of those 1% extras and suddenly your book is 5, 10, 15% extra. So, um, you know, a lot of it is just about putting in the work, I'm afraid. Um, the books don't write themselves, but it's almost always worth making that extra effort. Um, so um, that secondary sources, be careful of them. Use them to really encourage you to, to sort of keep going with the story because you can see what can be made of it and has been done by other people or if they're writing about other people in your story. Um, but don't rely on them. You know, books are not just good books, and not just rehashes of other people's work. Um, they really require you to work from a primary source. Um, a primary source sounds quite scary, and it sounds like sort of you, know, you need to be a historian to deal with. The primary sources are, are very basic things. They're things like if you're telling a family story, going and talking to your dad about it. That's a primary source. You might get to go and talk to my grandmother about this murder, but she'd been out in the Bahamas at the time. Uh, they are also, by a long way, the most fun thing that you'll work with. It gives you a sense that you're really sort of at the coalface of, in my case, history, because there's nothing quite like um, you know, coming across something which nobody else has seen before, or um, nobody else has um, you know, had the opportunity to use. So this is a rather touching letter, I don't know if you can see it, from uh, the comrade of a soldier that I was writing about, um, a commando who'd been killed in Burma. And this was a letter from his best friend to uh, the soldier's mother, giving the mother some sense of what her son had been like as a soldier, as I was writing about this man. You know, that was, you know, a thrill, really, because nobody, none of his friends survived. The writer of this letter was no longer alive. And here I was, you know, being given you know, a wonderful, very touching pen portrait of Jocelyn Nichols as an officer and indeed a gentleman. Um, and that's in an archive just over the road in King's College, the Little Heart Military Archive, but nobody had ever, as far as I know, seen it or or made use of it, and yet, um, you know, there it was waiting to be discovered 70 years on. Um, so um, you've got to get your hands dirty. I mean, you've got to get sort of back to, um, you know, things which were written at the time. 
Um, you know, that might be uh, things in archives. I mean, I spend a lot of my time in the National Archives. Um, if you're, I mean, it's, it's, it's surprising the amount of stuff that is held in um, official institutions. There's a very useful portal on the National Archives website called A2A, which is Access to Archives, um, which you can search um, by putting in whatever it is you're interested about. And you'll be amazed at the amount of stuff that turns up in a local archive about you know, your house or the people who lived there before you lived there or uh, some census that mentions the family or some legal case that you didn't know about. I found my grandparents' divorce papers in the National Archive and I knew they'd uh, got divorced. I didn't know anything about the circumstances of it. Maybe the family never told me uh, about it. Um, uh, so I discovered uh, from it that um, actually my grandfather's first wife he got divorced from and then married my grandmother. Um, and um, uh, I discovered basically that, that um, you know, he'd had to get married because my grandma was pregnant with my father. I mean, that was, uh, you know, that was a, a, a surprise to me. Um, so um, you're, you know, you, you can be surprised by the things that you turn up, and it may, they may well uh, confound what you thought about something, but that's, you know, part of trying to tell the story accurately, and I think that's your primary duty to your reader. Yes, you want to entertain them, but at the same time you want to do that with a certain amount of integrity. And I think one of the problems with um, historical drama on TV, particularly television is a particular culprit of this, is that they don't really trust the sources. They make a big play of how authentic a thing looks, uh, which it often does, but they don't trust the facts to be dramatic enough so that's why they're always adding stuff to it or detracting. Instead of trying to get the drama out of the history, they're usually giving some sort of spin or uh, exaggeration to it to try to make it more exciting. Um, I think if you approach history or the past or non-fiction with whatever you're, uh, with the right attitude, you can find the drama in it, the thing, the story that's there that you know can be compelling if it's told in the right way. It doesn't need uh, you to play fast and loose with uh, with the past. It's just a question, as I say, of um, putting in the work and um, also having a bit of luck. So, chap on the right here, it's a man called Robert Davis, who was the first winner of the George Cross, which is the highest award for gallantry in uh, the UK. It was created in 1940 at the height of the Blitz, um, really to honour Davis because he was hailed as the man who saved St Paul's Cathedral, just down the road, when a bomb, unexploded bomb, landed next to it and he and his team had spent uh, three days and three nights digging it out, um, aware that at any moment it could go off and kill them all and destroy the cathedral. And the story was that um, when it had been finally uh, dug out, he uh, had driven it alone, uh, well, driven a lorry with the bomb load on it alone uh, through the east end of London out to Hackney Marshes, and there it had been detonated. This is a great story, the man's a hero. Um, but <laughs> when I started looking into the facts of the story, and again, just doing very basic things that 
you know, not a, you know, you don't need to be an academic to do. Um, all sorts of discrepancies, you know, came to light. So, um, for instance, it turned out that there's actually in the Museum of London what's claimed to be the fuse from this bomb. Um, well, the two things obviously were struck me, you know, as being strange about that. One was if this bomb had been blown up, what was the fuse doing in the museum? And the second thing was it was very apparent from this fuse, which bore a silver inscription signed by Davis, that it was the wrong kind of fuse. This wasn't a fuse that um, the Germans put in to um, essentially delay the explosion bomb. The idea, the idea of um, not letting a bomb go off straight away was essentially to cause, to paralyze um, parts of uh, Britain. So they'd be dropped on docks, railways, hospitals, anywhere where um, a delay of three or four days, Spitfire factories, airfields, might be vital because people wouldn't want to approach them because they thought they might go off. So again, you know, it turned out actually this man was a total fraud, um, I'm afraid. The, the, um, the, uh, the ward of the GC certainly shouldn't have gone to him. They weren't in any danger at all. Uh, the bomb um, was probably a dud. Um, the Germans never actually put that kind of fuse in any case into a bomb that was so, was so big. Um, and they'd um, uh, covered up all sorts of things. He actually ended up being uh, cashiered, which means um, thrown out of the army, court-martialed and thrown out of the army, because he'd been stealing... Um, he'd been selling the services of the bomb disposal squad privately to people. They were going around building bomb shelters for rich people um, and stealing uh, government supplies uh, in order to do that. And then they'd also been asking money when, they, when they'd dug up bombs, which was their job, uh, from people's houses um, and offices. Uh, they'd been asking for money as a reward to do that. Uh, so I'm afraid he was just no good, but um, you know, it was a bit of a shock um, to, 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 to me and to other people to discover that. It doesn't say, you know, it hasn't made any difference to official record, afraid you can do all this work and it will take much notice. I mean, if you look him up on Wikipedia, it will still say that, you know, he was the first winner of the GC and what a great hero he was and how he'd save St Paul. But it's, you know, it's not the truth. So, um, you know, you can only do, do your best with it. Uh, other things you, you shouldn't neglect now, I mean, um, I mean, I'm getting on a bit, but I mean, anybody who's younger than me will be familiar with social media. Um, one of the great things about the internet has been the ease with which you can reach people. Almost anybody can now be found through, uh, if they're younger, uh, things like Facebook, Twitter, um, you know, not necessarily directly, but if you're creative again, you can, you know, put out appeals for, does anybody know somebody with this surname? You know, does anybody know anything about this? I'm interested in this. Um, you know, friends of mine who are journalists do this all the time. It's extraordinary how far and how quickly those will travel. Um, you know, people can be found in, you know, New Zealand or Canada or, or wherever, it, wherever it is. Um, so I discovered, for instance, the daughter of the man who'd made that fuse for that German bomb uh, living in Canada. Like, he happened to have a very distinctive name, which helped, but um, I discovered him uh, through um, a, a, a Twitter appeal to some friends of mine in Canada, um, and they tracked her down to him. Uh, so, you know, it's, in some ways, it's much easier now uh, to write non-fiction because of the access to all the stuff you can get. On the other hand, you end up with an awful lot of material. You know, you have to end up um, you know, sourcing it. Sometimes the easiest obituaries, the easiest stories to write are those which you have 
relatively little material because you know that's all you've got. You've got to make the best of it, and so you focus on the telling of it. Um, I think it's a real temptation to a non-fiction writer to try and stuff things into the book. You think, um, you know, I must get that in. You know, I went and did that interview. I mean, certainly for this book, I went to interview um, one of the very few surviving bomb disposal officers who'd never given an interview interview beforehand, and he took a lot of sort of cultivating to. Uh, let me talk to him and he told me absolutely nothing it was an incredibly dull interview uh, and I spent all that time and effort trying to get stuff out of him but if I put any of it into the book it would have just you know, lessened the pace which was what I was you know, keen to have in the book the thing that makes you turn the page so sometimes you've just got to be willing to say that this distorts the shape of the book this is not useful, yes I found it but it's, you know, it's not going to be um, useful. I think you know, writing is as much about leaving stuff out as it is about putting stuff in. You know, that, that's a choice. As I said, be, be active. Uh, you know, make a choice about you know, what you're writing. Um, and you know, be aware of how much of it's reliable, as I said. Um, you know, when you've got your material, I mean, what, do you, what do you do with it? How do you go about teasing out from it the story that needs to be told, or how do you go about organising it in the most readable way? I mean, often you've got a sense of that, I think, in any case. Um, you know, sometimes it's, you know, it's obvious. So, um, book I wrote about Nuremberg, no one really wants you know, to hear what I've got to say about Nuremberg. They want to hear uh, the Nazis in their own words. So that's really what that book is. It's just the testimony of people explaining why they've gone along with these terrible things. You know, so that's a fairly obvious thing to foreground. Uh, sometimes it's, it's not so obvious. Um, I wrote in, um, uh, when I was writing my book about um, unexploded bombs, I based it not really, a, it wasn't a chronological history of the technology, because I thought that not all readers would be gripped by rather sort of um, train spottery details about the development of different kinds of fuses and how these were overcome. So I tried to humanise it. I tried to tell the story through the experiences of four different people who'd been involved in this battle against this menace and what had happened to them. Uh, the looking chap on the parachute mine there with a pipe for the Earl of Suffolk um, who was a sort of extraordinary person in his own right and really a sort of gift to a writer but it was a nice way of uh, he's actually responsible for the Germans not having um, uh, made the atomic bomb before we did because he was the person who smuggled all the heavy water in the world at that stage out of France into Britain at the start of the war and therefore when the Germans went into Paris they weren't able to get heavy water and get on with their atomic research um, but that was a sort of um, uh, another part of the story. Um, but it, it, was, it was a way of letting me um, tell a story without necessarily telling the story that you thought you were going to be told. You know, if you read about him and his life and what he'd been doing, you're also learning an awful lot about unexploded bombs and research at the same time, but in a more palatable, digestible form. Uh, that's somebody called John Hudson, uh, who was another um, key figure in the bomb disposal world. Um, I told his story mainly through his passion, which was for horticulture. 
He was wasn't at all anything to do with uh, an expert on bombs at the start of the war. He was a world expert on, um, for instance, orchids and things like that. I mean, you know, that was that was the background that he had come from. So that allowed me again to humanise him. You know, here. One of the great things about the war is the fact that it took ordinary people, people who weren't professional soldiers, and asked them to do extraordinary things. And so to give some sense of the way, the world in which he'd come from, it was important to explore you know, what he was like and what his interests were. You know, these people, their soldiering was just you know, one dimension uh, of their lives. Um, this is an obituary I wrote uh, for the Times uh, last week of an Italian actress called Valera de Francesis. Um, the opening of her doesn't start, it's not at all about her my interest in it was the film that she was in um, which made her famous called Pranzo di Ferragosto which is really about the relationships between the generations in Italy um, and so the obituary was a way of uh, me not really so much telling her life as explaining to people this unusual, peculiar relationship that there is in Italy between older people and younger people. It's very common, for instance, for uh, grandchildren to live with grandparents and to look after them when they're older. Um, and often it's a rather tyrannical relationship. <coughs> the younger generation then can't get away. So it was, she was the hook, but it was a way of allowing me to tell another story. Um, I'm going to sort of wrap this up quite quickly because in case people want to ask questions. Um, key thing to bear in mind when you're telling the story is who you're writing it for. It's very common to think that it's really for yourself. Um, I don't think writers write in a vacuum. Um, I think you write, or you should write to be read. Um, and um, you should always have in your mind, uh, or be aware at least, that you know, we write to communicate. You know, why do we put something down on paper? It's because we want to tell a story or tell something to somebody else when we're not there. Um, you know, who is that person? Um, be aware when you're writing that uh, it's going to be read by somebody else. Not that person isn't like you. Um, you know, my uh, natural bent is probably more academic. I write popular history for all sorts of reasons, not least because you get paid to do it. Um, and as a writer, you know, you need to sell books if you're going to go on writing. Um, but I'm very aware that people who buy my books about World War II have probably got half an hour on a train in the morning or in the evening when they're going back. You know, so that shapes the way in which those books are written. You know, my last book, which is about the commandos, it's very deliberately uh, short chapters, descriptions of operations, because I thought that somebody could probably read one of those a day when they were on doing their commute. You know, it was a way of drawing them through the book, and that's the reason that book is structured in that way, not because it's necessarily the obvious or um, the ideal way to tell the commandos, but it's, you know, bite-sized pieces for busy people. Um, you know, increasingly, things are being read on Kindles and, and tablets and so on. The way in which you interact with that is different. People will switch out of that. They'll go and look at their email, and then they'll come back. You know, these kind of things are shaping the way in which books are being written and they're to be considered. Um, you know, if I was, uh, you know, going to leave you with, you know, uh, anything sort of useful, I would say, when, you know, so for instance, think about if you want, you, know, you hope that your book's going to be published, you know, uh, again, what is it that publishers want to publish? Um, actually, they're not very interested in 
art and literature for its own sake. They're businesses. You know, I'm a writer, I'm a business. That's what my business is. You know, I pay the bills through my writing. Um, so publishers want to publish books which will sell. Um, sadly, that means that lots of books which are full of merit won't get published, and that shouldn't stop you from you know, whatever it is that you want to write. But if you, know, you, if you don't want to self-publish, you don't want to put it just on the internet and hope people will get out there, then you know, uh, it helps to have a publisher behind it. But the publishers are very hard-headed, so you need to think about you know, how can I make this something that they want to publish that will sell that people will want to read. Most would-be writers don't do that. That's why they don't get very far. Um, let me tell you something about the economics of publishing. You go into a bookshop, you see, go to Waterstones, you see all those books on the table, it says Waterstones recommends, that's all bogus. That is bought space. Publishers are paid for those books to be there. They're not there because Waterstones think they're a great read, they're there because Waterstones think they will sell, and more to the point, they've been paid by the publisher to have those books there. You go and look at a book <coughs> on the shelf. Is the title Face Out, or can you just see the spine? That's paid for. It's the same principle as you go into a supermarket. You know, where is the stuff on the shelf? Is it high and out of reach, or is it easy to get? That's all bought. Um, think about the economics of writing books. If you want to make this as a career, let's say you get paid 50,000, 60,000 for a non-fiction book, which would these days be a really good advance for a book. Sounds great. Sounds like a lot of money. So that's 60,000. If you've got an agent, you're giving them 15%. So that brings it down to 50,000 already. Then tax man takes the third. So that's going to bring it down to around about 30,000, 33,000. Uh, of that 33,000, you're only going to get a third up front. You'll get 10, 11,000 pounds as an advance. You only get two thirds of it until you finish the book. So let's say it's a non-fiction book, which may well take you a couple of years, perhaps not full time to write. You're doing it for 5,000 a year. So is that a full time job you want? So you know you have to think quite carefully about uh, you know people think that writers make a lot of money and they're rich and if you get published you know that's the key to everything. Well, it's not. Um, you know I've done quite a lot of telly. I've had books adapted for TV. People think if you're on the telly, you know you make a lot of money. You're not. I mean, uh, you get interviewed to appear as a talking head on something. You, if you're lucky, they'll give you a few hundred quid. Um, I've got a friend of mine. Moment she's having the rights of her book on idea. Um, looked at seriously by uh, BBC and HBO for what would be a four six-part series, something like that. Lots of executives there would pay, you know, pay themselves tens of thousands of pounds to executive produce it and, you know, make money and so on and so on. And they've offered her fifteen hundred quid, the whole thing. So that's the reality of writing. I mean, you have to do it because you love it. Um, you know, because there are people out there who you think want to read your story. You may get really lucky, you know. You, know, um, you may sell a lot of books, but there's no guarantee just because you've got a good story and it's well written that it will find a market. I mean, you think how many thousands of books there are in the average bookshop. You know, how many books you don't buy when you go into a bookshop. So it's something that needs to be approached with, um, you know, kind of hard-headedness about it, but that shouldn't sort of deter you from, from doing it. Um, one of the things I say to my students when I'm telling them about how to write is do it simply. Think about the power of advertising. You know, three words, uh, it tells you a lot. But it's also, you know, it's a good uh, piece of encouragement for writers. And I think, you know, 
uh, if you think about it, you know, you'll never do it. So you know, just get on and, and, and you know, write the book and, and you know, and enjoy it.